And you know, it's 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 uh, it's uh, so rewarding for me to find out that I keep on teaching and I keep on talking about metta and uh, I keep on teaching the same metta sutta and I keep on understanding it better. You know, I think, well, now I really got it. And I think, well, now I really got it. Now I really got it. Well, there's another way to say it. You know, really, there's another way to say it. I had, um, well, I'll start. I'll tell you a story to begin with. It's a good metta story. <laughs> I was going to tell you, I'm telling you the story because the moral of the story is, if I have to tell you the moral of the story, then it, you know, it's not a good story. It should be its own moral. <laughs> so let me see if I can start just with the story. A week ago, last Sunday, I uh, flew back to the United States and I, from uh, Europe, and I, I needed to go to Barcelona to fly to Paris, to fly to San Francisco. So it's a long day of flying. It's very intense. Start very early in the morning in Barcelona, because this was uh, uh, already after the security had become more heightened. So you have to be at the airport even earlier. So I'd been through several securities and screenings and padding downs in Barcelona and got to the, got to Paris. And uh, in Paris, you have to go through. Even it's the same airport, and you just got all the way through and check through. Somehow you go out a certain door and in another door and you've already been in an insecure place have to start all over again. And I had that one piece of hand luggage. So by the time I got there, I had already been through all the Barcelona screeners and patters and everything else. And in Paris, going again through the screeners, went through the machine, everything okay, padding. Get up to the gate and they have another final yet pat down and and go through the luggage so um, and they had a whole line of tables with uh, security officers and you go to the next one and someone unzips mine and opens it and really looks under all my clothing and I was and uh, uh, on the bottom I had bottles of salt and bottles of salt I'd no I noticed in the supermarket one day when I was shopping that there's a certain salt called sel de Bayonne, which has a special red flex in it. It was very good. I bought it. We put it on omelets. It was very tasty. I decided I'll bring this back for all my friends. This would be a very good present. It's not, it's not exorbitant. I can buy six or eight, put them in the bottom of my suitcase. Be lovely to take to friends' houses when we visit, souvenir. So I buy those. I bought a few other bottles of unusual spices. And they're all on the bottom of my suitcase. Here's this officer who's going through my suitcase. He says, what's this? And I speak well enough French to, and besides, it says Sel de Bayonne on it. So it knows what it is. So that, that's what it is. And it's, it's closed, you know, and it's sealed in that way that bottles are sealed. So I think this is not a problem. It's a small bottle. It's not a liquid. It's not contraband. You know, it's, so it's salt. So, so I said, listen, that's salt. And then he's taking them all out, and he's putting them on the table next to where he is. And then what's this? This is Moroccan seasoning spice, okay? That's out. And what's this? It was another spice of some variety. So then I said, look, I'm a cook. Uh, I was bringing these for my friends. There's more out, out. 
So, and then he calls his supervisor, he calls the attention of his supervisor over there. And, uh, you know, they, they're processing hundreds of people all the time, you know, a lot of time. Supervisor doesn't come over even. He looks from there, and he says, no, just, whatever signal he gave is out. So he says, and he starts zipping it up again. He says, no. Yeah. And, I, and truth to tell, a moment of big annoyance came up in me. <laughs> and in one second, my mind thought to you know, it thought, you know, that man who set himself on fire the week before, alas, he had no, he had bought a one-way ticket with cash. He was on a list. He had no luggage. I mean, there were all kinds of suspicious things about him. So I thought that, a moment of irritation, and here's this guy, and he's pushing all my clothes back in and trying to zip. And I said to him, uh, do you like your work? <laughs> and, you know, and he looked up at me, and he had such a face. He's a young boy, practically. He's a very young man. And he looked at me with such a sweet face. Like He said, uh, Madame, do you think it gives me any pleasure to do this kind of thing? And he didn't exactly spell out. He said something, do you think it gives me any pleasure to do this? And he didn't exactly say to take bottles of salt away from little old ladies, but you could, you could tell that that was, that was really implied in what he was saying. And I had a moment of such really warm regard for him, you know, a moment of really warm connection. Here's this guy, he's just doing his job, you know. He can't start that with, you know, this particular old woman with the salt she can go through, but everybody, you know, obviously, of course he's right, and he's doing his job, and um, <laughs> he's doing the best he can. When I got all the way home, and I unpacked there were three more bottles of salt in the bottom. <laughs> so, it, but so on a certain way, you know, it's not that all foolproof, but you know, they're just doing the best they can. So, but in that moment of warm connection, I realized that the 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 antipathy that I had felt had disappeared, and I realized that's actually what metta is about. That all warm connection dissolves antipathy, and actually, if I thought about it a little bit more, it dissolves all of the hindrance energies. That uh, that it dissolves um, anger. It dissolves uh, lust or need for something else because warm connection is so sustaining just by itself. It dispels restlessness and fear because it's really comforting, a, warm, a moment of warm connection. Here I am in the middle of all this and alert, and you could get frightened, and I wasn't, you know? Uh, it's a really a moment of warm connection. And I thought, that's what metta practice is. It's continual moments of warm connection. That's really what we're doing. It's not, uh, uh, it's not so much more complicated than that. I sat down in the, in, the, um, in, the, in the boarding lounge now that I was in, and I, and I realized I was so really overjoyed that I had gotten over that antipathy. It was like, phew, had a close call. I could have really sat here and... <laughs> fumed and thought about it. And I thought to myself and said, I thought, that's a funny story. I'll tell it on Wednesday next week. You know? That's a really a funny story. That you know, I schlepped this salt all over France and uh, to Barcelona and in and out and up and down. 
So I, by the way, I said to this young man while he's packing up my stuff, I said, you want to take this home to your mother, this stuff, all those <laughs> spices? He said, we can't do that. We have to throw it out. So it's, you know, they can't do it, you know, because they can't. But, but I looked at him, and I thought, he's got a mother. You know, he's a young man, you know, got a mother. Now, the, the other thing I realized as I was sitting in the boarding lounge is that it was such a pleasure not to be mad anymore about it. All right. It was a good thought. I'll give my friends the salt. But, you know, if I think about it, half my friends are on blood pressure medicine. They don't need the salt. <laughs> but it's just a thought. But I hadn't thought about it. But really, really what the pleasure was is that the mind gets expansive. And then it gets appreciative. I looked around and I thought, you know, it's pretty amazing that we're probably going to get there safe. The likelihood is that we're going to get there safe. And it's an amazing thing. It's a little more than 100 years since the Wright brothers flew 90 yards or something. And here we are picking up this giant metal bird and flying it 6,000 miles and landing in the right place at exactly the time when we take off, they say, we'll be in San Francisco at 11.42, and we came at 11.43 or something like that. How do they know they're going to be there at 11.40? I mean, they have computers, obviously, but, but that they can know that and do that and organize themselves and have it come out and feed you two meals while you're there and you watch a few movies. and It's a little tight, but it's not that bad. and It's, um, it's really amazing. So I th And I thought to myself that... Opposite of constricted mind is really amazed mind. And that I think, where is it? Susan's not here today. Susan signs her emails, stay amazed, Susan Felix. And I think actually amazed is the mind state that, uh, uh, not the mind state, but is a mind state that really makes it possible to get through this life without so much despair or so much dismay. I think it's, it's amazing. Go ahead, Nancy. I can't quite remember how it goes, but I just came across a Mary Oliver line, and it says, I think it says, leave room in your heart for the unimaginable. Leave room in your heart for the unimaginable. <laughs> you know, when I think about your project, Nancy, and uh, I'll, I'll try to come on that Sunday. I'm going to bring two of my grandchildren if I can get them for that day. Because I always think about, it's unimaginable to think of a 12-year-old or a 16-year-old. How old are these people? Of, of people coming to San Francisco who can't swim one week later, swimming from Alcatraz to San Francisco. That is unimaginable. How could you do a thing like that? You know? Um, it's, a, it's, it's like human beings are amazing. And other human beings who believe in them can have amazing things happen. And when people hear about that or know about that, they wow. And it so uplifts the mind. Look what people can do. And I think it uplifts our own spirit in terms of what we could possibly do. I think the, I, th I think we, we, I so, let me see how to say this. My own mind, when it begins to feel despair, oh, look, the world is, the ice caps are melting. Look at the weather. It's freezing in France and in the, in the south. It's, it's the, the citrus is freezing. It's all finished. It's all over. And then I think to myself, I don't know that it's all over. It's, it's different. But the imaginable, unimaginable, 
can happen. I've been having a subscription to a magazine called Good. Have you seen that magazine? I should bring it one of this. It's great. Uh, it's good. The magazine is good. <laughs> you can look it up online and get a subscription to it. But it's about the hopeful things that are happening and good things that you should know. And there's so much good happening. There is, there is that very good thing that's happening. I'm about to... I had hoped to have time to show it to you, but I had... Okay, I was going to leave it to the end. I got, I, I got a response in the mail, an organization that I support a little bit and will support more. is called Finca. Do you know about Finca? Finca, yes? Everybody knows about Finca International. A mission, the mission of Finca International is to provide financial services to the world's lowest income entrepreneurs so they can create jobs, build assets, and improve their standards of living. We accomplish this by offering small loans and a savings program to those turned down by traditional banks, believing that even the poor have a right to financial services. With these loans, families can invest in and build their own small businesses, increasing their income earning capacity. Worldwide, our clients post, post repayments rate, re rates over 97%. So here are two women with uh, a sewing machine and says, uh, after 15 years in exile, Fatima Mohammed Musa returned to Afghanistan, becoming one of the first women to join the initial groups, group of Jebrail women to receive a microloan from Finca. She and five friends formed a savings and credit group called Fudali or Skili. After the strength of the members, the strength the members see in their new group, and each received a loan of $125 to invest in their small businesses, tailoring, sewing, and food processing. As their businesses grow, so will their loans, allowing them greater security and the ability to improve the quality of life for their families. F-I-N-C-A. Maria Lucia... Patosi Ramirez of uh, San Jose, Ecuador, is married and the mother of five children. She has spent her lifetime weaving beautiful wool sweaters and selling them in the local market. But the income she earned from selling her handiwork went toward providing daily necessities for her family, never allowed her to save. When Maria Lucia learned about Finca in 2001, she took out a loan for $200, allowing her to purchase more wool at wholesale prices. Now her family eats better food. Her loans have tripled, allowing her to purchase and save more. As, as these are, and organizations like Finca clearly are not thinking, well, the ice cap is melting, it's all over. They're thinking the ice cap is melting, and these people could use a loan and do something with it. And I think to myself, it's, it's, I, I think it's not hard to get caught in the despair and the dismay and the cynicism and um, recrimination about which, which were the, um, what forces have brought us to this bad end. Instead, I think we could be thinking about where are the resources that could now bring us to a good end, you know? I think somebody's gonna have to, f will figure out how to fix the climate or vacuum clean the atmosphere or Maybe someone would figure out a giant vacuum cleaner over Los Angeles. Who knows? 
but the you know, but the Wright brothers flew ninety yards, and now that Iron Bird flies six thousand miles, full of people eating meals and imagining the unimaginable, for which you have to have an uplifted heart and the intention to help other people. Say, look at all these people. I was thinking a lot. Uh, now I thought of a story I hadn't planned to tell you today, but maybe I will about up to the last minute in our lives. The possibility, I think, is always we can get absorbed in our own story. And uh, sometimes our own story is quite good and delightful or interesting. But a lot of times our own story is, how will I do this? How will I fix this? This is too hard. This isn't going right. And the possibility of looking around at other stories and taking heart from them and making an investment of spirit, if not money, in other stories, and then thriving with those stories. It's the investment in people. Joe isn't here today. Uh, uh, Joe Button isn't here. And uh, I think about her when I teach uh, Metta, and I usually mention her when I'm teaching Metta to a big group like uh, the group up there, because there's a part in Metta practice where people come together and they spend a week spending the whole day, day after day, sitting and making really blessings for people. May I feel safe. May I feel content. May I feel, uh, may I feel happy. May I feel strong. May I live with ease. May I feel safe. May I feel happy. May I feel strong. May I live with ease. And then they think about the people that they love a lot. They wish that for them which usually is not hard because they come to mind and we really do love them. So it's not that hard to wish for them. And uh, then we think of our friends, and that's not so hard either most of the time. And then we come to up to... Uh, yesterday we were up to the neutral person. Well, I, stopped, I stopped actually partly from, partly from Joe and partly... Uh, from somebody who gave me a better term. I've been calling them familiar strangers because my dentist is not a neutral person. I, I, you know, I kind of like him. If I didn't like him, I'd have another dentist, you know. <laughs> and my hairdresser, the same, you know. I don't think about them when I'm not having my hair cut or going to the dentist. I Honestly, they're not part of my intimates. I don't think about them. But not because I don't like them. I, I, I do kind of like them. That's why I have them. <laughs> But familiar stranger is the person who delivers my mail and my hair cutter and my dentist. And but used to, we used to call them neutral persons. And I was talking about that once here on a Wednesday morning. And I said, it's very hard to find a neutral person in terms of the mind. Because when we meet people, in like a half a second, we make a decision. We like the way they look, or they, we don't like the way they look, or... We like what they just said. A person in a group says something good, and you think, oh, that's a really, you know, that's great. I like that person. Somebody else says something, you say, ah, oh, I don't like that person. Such a thing to say. You know, we make a momentary view, and then we have it, because then it becomes the person who said something good and the person who said something not good. So it's very useful, that human filing cabinet, as we're learning to navigate in the world, but. It's not so useful to have it cluttered up with views based on small pieces of information. Anyway, I said I was saying here, I'm making some 
overarching statement like there aren't so neutral, many neutral people, like I just made that statement. And Joe said, that's not true. She said, uh, when I stand up in front of an, an airplane and I say, fasten your seatbelts, I mean for everybody the same to fasten the seatbelts. I don't mean it more for some people than for other people. I want everybody just the same to fasten their seatbelt and to, so that we'll all get there safe. And I thought to myself at the time, and I have corrected myself every time I start to say there are no neutral people, that the, that, that view of Joe, of we're all, we need all of us getting there safe for any of us to get there safe, is a much bigger view than just airplanes, like on the earth. That we can't, we in the collective human being point of view, we, uh, us and our, our progeny, our neighbors, their progeny, their grandchildren, they're not going to come safely to their, through their journey unless everybody comes safely through the journey. We have to really lift up the whole world. It has to be a safe place to live for everybody. I begin to think of that uh, presumably neutral or familiar strangers group of people as representative, really, of the whole world. And really, what I've begun to recognize in myself this week as I've been teaching and thinking about it is that the practice of metta is really not the practice of sending, I mean, functionally it's the practice of sending good wishes to people. May you be well, may you be well, may you be well, may you be well. But, and I hope it works. And people say all the time, do you think people feel your wishes? And I don't know, but I feel the wishes. And that I'm positive about. And that actually is, the, for me, the transformative thing. That if I experience myself as a well-wishing person, it's exactly the opposite feeling. As people used to say, I don't hear this anymore, I'm happy to say it so much. Do you remember people say, I wouldn't give that person the time of day. That's a really bad expression, isn't it? It's really awful to think I wouldn't give that person the time of day. Why? I mean, it's like so, so if that person lives with such um, bad feeling in your mind that you wouldn't give them the time of day, you must be pretty much in pain from them. That's a pretty small thing to give to somebody the time of day. <laughs> now, you have to be pretty pained. You must you have to be harboring some tremendous grudge to not give somebody the pain. It's like somebody says, I'm not going to forgive so-and-so as long as I live. That's another terrible thing to hear because when somebody says that, you see that they are locking themselves into a, uh, a prison of having an enemy for the rest of their lives. Someone once told me that seemed when they heard that expression, it seemed like, I'm looking around, I'm thinking some of you are maybe as old as I am, or almost, that uh, when I was growing up, there were uh, cowboy movies. And there aren't any more now, because they're really, they are and they were politically very incorrect and <laughs> did not do any good for anybody's understanding of the Native American community. but. In the time that I was growing up, there were cowboy movies, and there were small-town jails. And uh, often people would be, um, in a comedy movie, someone would get um, arrested 
for disturbing the peace, which I think is pretty sweet. I mean, in terms of what people are arrested for these days, <laughs> disturbing the peace, you know. That would be a very minor thing in terms of what people are arrested for these days. Disturbing the peace by being drunk or disorderly or something. And they're put in jail. And in the movies, uh, the, the joke would be that someone would be um, put in a, says as someone would be locked in a movie and uh, somehow they'd be in, a, in one of those jails with an old time key. And, the, and that somehow, They'd take out, they'd reach out, the key'd be in the door, they'd reach out, but then the key would slip out of their hands and it'd be there. Or they'd, act, they'd throw the key away, and then the joke would be that they've locked themselves in their own prison. But it remains in my mind, all the political incorrectness, <coughs> et cetera, aside, it remains in my mind as a metaphor, uh, a pretty graphic metaphor of what happens if we say, I'm never going to forgive so-and-so for the rest of my life. So we have thrown away the key to our own liberation, and we feel like, I won, you see, just for that. That person, I'm never going to forgive them, as if that person somewhere, wherever they are, is bothered by that. They're going around having a life. They're not bothered by, I wonder who in the world hasn't forgiven me. There's something very weird about that. So really, I think what metta is, is a purification of the mind. It finds every little bit of what has not been reconciled, that doesn't forgive, that doesn't accept, that doesn't make space for. And it says you still haven't given up on this, and you still haven't given up on that. I'll read you the Metta Sutta, a little bit of it. We do it from time to time here. But I want to tell you how I've been thinking about it recently. You might have one on you. Many people carry them with them. Oh, do you want to show your book, Ruth? <laughs> I have one of those in my purse. Ruth has made a book of uh, photos. Uh, it's just photos that I've associated with the lines of the sutta, and I just keep it in my purse. I just keep it in my purse, too. If other people wanted to keep it in their purse, could they get one, or do you have many of them? or? Many of them, but they can be ordered. Yes? Yes. I can pass it around if you Why don't you pass it around? <laughs> it's a great thing. <coughs> this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. Peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. One of the things that I've been thinking in the last couple of years, and which I'm thinking really with pleasure about these days, is that this sutta really is an overview of the entire Buddhist path, that if you pick up a, a textbook, actually one of the um, one of the more traditional, older texts. I'm thinking of uh, Rahula Wampala out there or, um, with a presentation of what the Buddhist, pa Buddhist path is. 
it will say that the Buddhist path is sila samadhi panya. It means morality training, mind training, and wisdom training. And my sense is that this sutta is really an overview of the three trainings, and that those, I think, 11 lines that I just read are the morality trainings. If you, as, as you listen to it, and uh, I read them, it sounds like it sounds, in a sense, redundant. It's doesn't uh, it? It just says over and over in different ways. It's uh, and then ends by saying, "Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove." And it's already said: humble, not conceited, contented, straightforward, gentle, upright. This morning was the uh, precepts morning. People are here for the precepts. So the precepts, you say, I undertake the, the, the vow, the training vow, to not harm living beings, to not uh, exploit them in any way, to not harm them or exploit them uh, through my speech or through my sexuality. I undertake the vow as well to keep my mind clear so I'll be able to do those other vows. They really are the over the overriding message is I won't harm in any way or in no way will I be exploitive or abusive would be the one precept that says all the five precepts. But I think it's really important to have the fifth one about I'm going to keep my mind clear so that I can do that, not harm or exploit. I thought about how I think morality is built into us in a, to a certain degree. I, I really think this in terms of my good feeling about uh, the world pulling itself out of its difficult position that it's in now. I think by and large people are good. Someone told me this morning, I've been away from the news, but uh, I was talking on the phone to someone, and they said there's been a terrible catastrophic earthquake in Haiti. So I didn't know about that. And I said, are, you know, are people rushing from all over to, with aid and help? And they said, yes, they are. You know, they, and, and, and I think we rush to each other's aid when we're reminded. Sometimes I think maybe it's a little bit of a cynical thought. I wish we were reminded more of the need to help other people before it's catastrophic. Before it's catastrophic, there were a lot of problems in Haiti before this. But you know, when something catastrophic happens, and people really look around and say, "Wow, look what happened," they mobilize. I think that's what human beings do. I th the way I think that we, I have uh, a um, a, um, a trust that human beings are fundamentally good, is that. When I'm meditating, especially if I'm on, no, not even if I'm just on retreat, even at home, but when I sit down to meditate and my mind gets just a little bit relaxed, what comes up into it often is things I didn't do. Oh, you forgot to call your cousin back. Ah, oh, you forgot to do this. Ah, oh, so-and-so was talking on the phone and they really wanted to talk more and you hurried up and finished the conversation because you wanted to get out that I'm very happy to see that I have a moral inventory because I think everybody does. And I think that's what keeps us 
as much as we mostly don't hurt each other. People mostly don't hurt each other. You know, sometimes you, with all the hype about uh, terrorists on planes, I was in San Francisco. I was in San, I was in New York actually. I was in New York uh, recently. I was thinking about this when I'm in New York. I ride the subways a lot, to whenever I need to, and you go down into a New York subway and it pulls into the station, and it looks like it's going to explode, especially in the rush hour. There are so many people in there. And the door opens, and you think they're just going to explode out the door. And a lot of people do sort of explode out. But then the people who are leaving get out. And then the people who are not get back into the train. And I also get into the train. And the other people who are waiting get into the train, into an impossibly crowded train. And I sit down. I'm standing. Sit down. Stand in the train, just really squished in with people. And you look around, and... New York is great because it's such a microcosm of the whole world. You look around, and every single person is a different shape of features and a different color. It's all the ethnicities are vast and old and young, and big and small. And it's like the whole world is pushed into this subway car. And we're all behaving ourselves. Everybody is standing here next to each other. You think if one person made a little mayhem here, it could be terrible. But nobody does. Everybody stands and behaves and pulls themselves in and makes room for everybody else. I thought to myself, you know, uh, the line about dependent on the kindness of strangers. How often we are dependent on the kindness of strangers. In the train, that people are going to hold us up and not do anything offensive um, on the freeway, especially if my mind falls into, for a moment, thinking anything not good about the other people on the freeway. Look, all these people on the freeway, one person in a car, carbon footprint. I'm also one person in a car at that time. But you know, if you think about it, the mind is really outrageous could be complaining on the other people, one person in the car, while I'm one person in the car. It's ridiculous. But to look around and say, you know, I am really dependent on the kindness of strangers. Any one of these people could bang into me. And the fact that I'm going to get to where I'm going safely depends on everybody else watching out for me. So it makes sense for me to actually thank them and bless them, and may you come to your journey, end of your journey successfully. Because if you do, then I will. And it will also keep me up to wish them well. It will also keep my mind much clearer on the driving if it's not cluttered with thoughts about those people. Not doing the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. That's about like my favorite line, maybe. Omitting none. That's an outrageous mandate, you know? Many, many people, and this is not meant to be a joke or funny, many people will say, you know, I have love for the whole world in my heart, every person in the whole world, except. And then they tell you the one person, that person, I can't make room in my heart. And I think... It's so sad. 
You don't have to like the person. It's definitely not about liking every single person in the world. And it's definitely not about thinking every single person in the world is doing great. But it's about not having animosity in your heart for anyone, not based on what they're doing, but based on the fact that they're a human being and that life is a struggle. I've been reading from um, this poem by Nyana Panaka, who's a very great Dharma teacher who died in the last, uh, last decade of the 20th century. He wrote about what real metta love is. And it says about, uh, it's quite long, but the line I want to read you, uh, it says that we should have uh, love for every kind of person uh, the good for good people, because love flows to them spontaneously, and not good people, evil. It says evil people are included, because those are the ones who are most in in need of love. Then it says this great line: in many of them, the seed of goodness may have died, merely because because warmth was lacking for its growth, because it perished from cold in a loveless world. Imagine if I thought about everybody who I thought about. I thought, you know, this person's seed of goodness perished somewhere along the way. Alas, for them, I could feel compassion for them. You know, they will not be better off if I think X or Y, but I will be better off if I think X or Y, if I have not animosity in my heart. The omitting none is a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a thrilling mandate. I've been thinking about that all week long. It's absolutely thrilling. There's no wiggle room. Omitting none. The great and the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. That's really hard to do. Even not wishing harm. I'm trying to think about, is anybody that I actually wish harm towards? I hope not. A lot of people that I, my mind flinches about. But it, it really feels different to wish harm. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. I actually have been thinking a lot about that particular phrase, sublime abiding. What do you think that is, sublime abiding? What do you think? What's your experience of sublime abiding? Have an idea? What's your best? I think it's my mind not having a problem with anything. Nothing is problematic. Mm 
I mean, things might be challenging, but the mind that says it's okay. It's okay. I'm trying to think of an example that's not ordinary. I hope this works. Here's an example. When, um, it's okay, we have time to finish the sutra. Uh, the first mindfulness retreat I went on uh, of some significance was 14 days long and um, in 1977. And in the end of it, on the day before it ended, on the evening before it ended, I called home and talked to my husband to make up about what plane I was coming on or whatever because we were then talking at the end of the retreat. And in the course of the conversation, I said, how's my father? Uh, my father lived down the street from me in Greenbrae, and we were very good friends, and I loved him a lot. And um, he had been feeling peaked before I left and had a doctor's appointment. And he was 65 years old. He was in great health. He uh, was running 10K races, and he was fine playing golf every day. I said, how's my dad? And he said, you know, I really have sad news to tell you. Your dad has been to the doctor, and he has cancer. And he has a cancer that's not actually curable. Um, they can treat it a little bit, but um, it's not curable. And people usually live about two years. Actually, he lived longer than that, but... Uh, the thing that happened to me in that moment is I felt tremendously sad that that had happened, you know, and I tell that to people. I really want them to know that it wasn't that I was so meditated out, I just had no effect on me at all. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't have been able to say, had someone asked me before that phone call, did this two weeks do you any good? Um, because I didn't feel that all different from when I came. When I came for the first five days, I had a terrible headache. Um, for a lot of it, I didn't get the instructions what I was supposed to do. I mean, I heard the words, but I really couldn't do anything with it. Uh, it was incredibly, uh, it was a big surprise to me to find how much my body hurt from holding it still and sitting in that position. I was a yoga teacher in those days, and I thought, well, it's going to be a piece of cake because I'm a yoga teacher was very hard. And my teachers said to me, well, that, those are karmic knots untying. I don't know if that's true or not, but sometimes I say that to people now. I say, you know, my teachers said to me, and people like that. They say, you know, oh, karmic knots untying. That's all right then. You know, it sounds like a good thing to happen. But you know, what I realize now is whether or not the karmic knots are untying, if you think that what you have is not a bad thing because in the long run it's going to be good, like some karmic knots will untie, whatever that means. It doesn't hurt you so much. So I w And I would have said I can smell food a little bit more clearly and taste it. And the greens and the leaves look a little sharper. And um, But I would have said other than that, the, the doors of perception a little bit more awake. You know, I'm not, you know, I didn't feel liberated. I hadn't had some great, I didn't think I had profound concentration. But here I am in a, a phone booth at that time. It was way before cell phones. And you know that feeling 
where somebody tells you terrible news, they call you and they tell you terrible news, and you feel like the floor has fallen out from under you, or you feel like you're gonna faint, or you can't believe that news it like crashes in your mind. And I felt terribly, terribly sad, but I, none of those other things didn't happen. And in that moment, the truth is, I didn't say to myself, whoa, look at that. My mind is really different. It must be good for you, mindfulness. I'll take it up. I didn't think any of those things. I was thinking about the fact that my father had cancer. But I remember that I said, well, and in, the feeling I had in my mind was, all right, we'll have to take care of this. We'll just do it, he and I. And we just did it for the next seven years. And um, we did a lot of good things together in those seven years. And uh, it wasn't terrible. And maybe the sublime abiding is the mind that's so, that, that, that has a certain degree of balance. Maybe the sublime abiding is not bliss or joy. Maybe some, because that, that was, a, if I look back, that's one of the moments in my life that I'm very, very grateful for. I think it was a grace, you know, that if I would have had those, that news three weeks earlier or three weeks later, it would have fallen on a different mind, and I would have had a harder time with it. And I thought it was really a grace that it happened just on that day. Which is not to say that my mind was then totally wonderful, and it was very, it was years until I really, really had a sense of what I'm doing in this meditation. But even without that, it seems to me that I must have been much steadier than I thought I was, just from those two weeks of quiet, simple living, and even of the intention to steady the mind, even that I didn't think I was anywhere off square one on the steadying. I must have been on square one and a quarter, or square one and a half, because I somehow heard that differently. Maybe that's a sublime abiding steadiness of mind, so that the mind knows, okay, this is a challenge. What should we do now? Because I think that's the whole life. Okay, this is a challenge. What do we do now? Not having a problem with eek, a challenge. This is a story. It's a whole, when, when the first noble truth, oh dear, it's five to nine. Three to, no, no, I'll have to pick up the pace because I want to tell you the end of this. You know, when, when the, we teach the first noble truth about life is suffering, it's a very poor translation. I've been reading a lot of John Peacock recently. talks about it's a really bad translation of the word dukkha. It means you can't count on things. They're always changing. You have to constantly be adjusting to things. And every adjust is a challenge. Every adjust is a challenge, some of them way bigger than others. Let's finish the sutra. So next week, either I, I bring back a piece of it, but whatever, this, is a, this makes it a whole teaching. I think the whole middle part that says everybody, no matter who, near, far, up, down, to wish them the same. That means this is serious training in keeping the mind steady. Whoever comes into the mind, may you be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. 
may you be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. That's a serious training in steadying the mind. So then we come to, one should sustain this recollection. What's the recollection? I think the recollection is that everybody is struggling. Everybody's struggling. You look at people on the outside, you know, you can't tell sometimes. Sometimes you can't tell on the outside. But sometimes it looks like you can tell on the outside, but they're struggling about something else, not what you think is their challenge. But everybody's struggling. That is the nature of this life. And if not in this moment, soon. It's, I think that's what, that, that understanding is what brings up oh, the impulse to care. I think it's that uh, uh, amazement that sustains the impulse to care. Not I, uh, it's so over, I care, but it's so overwhelming, I give up. I care, and this is an awesome thing, this life. I don't give up. This is said to be the sublime of abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, is not born again into this world. I'd love to read to you the, a line from this book, which is the best book I've read in a long time. I love this book. It's called um, The Elegance of the Hedgehog. And it's written, uh, it's translated from the French. Oh, I can't find the piece that I want to read to you. Da, 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 da. I will find it here. Because I think the end of the sutta has the most important line in it. By not clinging to fixed views that I think I, for myself, the source of my dismay is always that I have a view about something. Sometimes I have a view, uh-oh, this happened, now it's going to be terrible. It's, how do I know? I'm not clairvoyant. You know that This happened, uh-oh, that shouldn't happen, but it already happened. What do you want to do? The, the, the thing of fixed views is not just this, this is a good person, this is a bad person, but can I see clearly of what's going on, what's actually going on out there, and can I connect with it for real? So this is a very extraordinary passage. It's, um, this is a book of two, it's fiction, of course, but it's written in the form of two diaries that you hear from for a while from uh, the 54-year-old concierge who lives in a certain building in Paris, and then you hear the voice of a 12-year-old who lives in that same building in Paris, and it goes back and forth, back and forth. And this is the 12-year-old who has just, uh, who has been feeling tremendously out of sorts and out of, uh, you know, looking around saying, I just don't get my family, I don't get my school. Really, uh, a very precocious, very bright, very bright, and um, very clearly seeing what's wrong with the world, 12-year-old, who has just met a man who's moved into the building who was really interested in her as a person. And what a significant meeting that was, that she met someone was really profoundly interested. So she says, so here is my profound thought for the day. This is the first time I've met someone who seeks out people and who sees beyond. That may seem trivial, but I think it is profound all the same. We never look beyond our assumptions, and what's more, 
We have given up trying to meet others. We just meet ourselves. We don't recognize each other because other people have become our permanent mirrors. If we actually realized that, if we were to become aware of the fact that we are only ever looking at ourselves and the other person, that we are alone in the wilderness, we would go crazy. When uh, my mother offers macaroons from Chez La Durée to Madame de Broglie, she is telling herself her own life story and just nibbling at her own flavor. When Papa drinks his coffee and reads his paper, he is contemplating his own reflection in the mirror, as if practicing the Kuei method or something. When Colomb talks about Marion's lectures, she is ranting about her own reflection. And when people walk by the concierge, all they see is a void because she's not from their world. As for me, I implore fate to give me the chance to see beyond myself and truly meet someone. Is that a great line? I love that. I implore fate to see, to give me the chance to see beyond myself and truly meet someone. That's so beautiful. That's page number 145. Have you read it? I read it in French. Yeah. Look for it. L'élégance d'Hérisson. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful. I thought now that I've read it in English, I'll go back and read it in French because the language will be beautiful. Um, so it's uh, Muriel, B-A-R-B-E-R-Y. And uh, I implore fate to be able to see and be met. I think that's what the metta practice is doing. If I take out from my mind all the people who remain impediments to my opening my mind and my eyes to the whole world and say, here I am, you want to meet me. I'll see the whole world, not mirrors. And they'll see me. And that is what I would like to do. And that is what I think that practice does for you. Listen to me. When I teach up there, I become like a preacher. Wow. <laughs> but I'm, maybe because I've been away for so long. But I'm happy to be back and have people to preach to. So, uh, <laughs> so we'll see each other next week. Thank you very much. Um, where's the bell? Where's the bell? May the merit of our being together and thinking together and being together and meditating together be offered for the well-being of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.